Welcome to the Pastor Nick Santo Podcast, a podcast designed to help you live closer to Jesus. We hope that God uses it to encourage and empower you in His plan for your life. Now let's get into today's content. If you have your Bible, you can open it to 2 Samuel chapter 2 for our Bible study tonight. If you need a Bible and you want to follow along with us, you can get the attention of Joe. <laughs> right now, and he'll give you a Bible, or you can look it up on your mobile device, follow along on the screen, just please follow along in the Word as we go through. Uh, we're going to read, I'm going to uh, read from verse 5 of chapter 2, and I'm going to read through the end of the chapter, and then we get into the message tonight, um, but I want to give you the whole story right up front, you know, so it's kind of an interesting, uh, intriguing passage, and uh, um, it has implications throughout all of history, but, but certainly in the days that we're living in today. So uh, 2 Samuel chapter uh, 2, verse 5, we'll read through and then I'll pray and then we'll get into it. It says, And David sent messengers unto the men of Jabesh-Gilead and said unto them, Blessed be ye of the Lord that you have showed this kindness unto your Lord, even to Saul, and have buried him. And now the Lord show kindness and truth unto you, and I also will requite or repay you for this kindness because you have done this thing. Therefore, now let your hands be strengthened and be valiant, for your master Saul is dead, and also the house of Judah have anointed me king over them. And so David invites the men of Jabesh-Gilead under his reign, and it says, But Abner, the son of Ner, who was captain of Saul's host, he was the general of Saul's military, took Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanaim. And made him king over Gilead and over the Asherites and over Jezreel and over Ephraim and over Benjamin and over all Israel. So the remaining 11 tribes, uh, Ishbosheth is anointed king over them by Abner. And it says that Ishbosheth, Saul's son, was 40 years old when he began to reign over Israel. And he reigned two years, but the house of Judah followed David. And the time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. And so there's a divided kingdom uh, for this period of time between the death of Saul and what happens next, seven and a half years. And it says that Abner, the son of Ner, and the servants of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, went out to or out from Mehanaim to Gibeon. And Joab, the son of Zeruiah, and the servants of David went out and met together by the pool of Gibeon. And they sat down, now that's not like a resort pool, it's probably like a a natural lake or a spring. And it says that they sat down, the one on the one side of the pool and the other on the other side of the pool. And Abner said to Joab, let the young men, men now arise and play before us. And Joab said, let them arise, I agree, let's spar. So there arose and went over by number 12 from Benjamin, which pertained to Ishbosheth, the son of Saul. And twelve of the servants of David. And they caught every one his fellow by the head and thrust his sword in his fellow's side, so they fell down together, wherefore the place was called Halkath Hazarim, which is in Gibeon. So they go out to have some friendly martial arts sparring. Twenty-four people are dead. And they called the place uh, the field of swords. That's what that means, that name that was there. And so there was a very sore battle that day. Things escalate quickly. And Abner was beaten and is the men of Israel before the servants of David. And there were three sons of Zeruiah there, Joab and Abishai and Azahel. Now Zeruiah 
is David's sister. So Zeruiah is not the father of these three men. She is actually the mother, and she is David's sister, same father. So uh, these are actually David's nephews, these three guys. And it says that Azahel was as light of foot as a wild roe. And Azahel pursued after Abner, and in going, he turned not to the right hand or to the left from following Abner. So he's running, he's chasing Abner, who is the general of Saul's uh, divided kingdom now. Then Abner looked behind him and said, are you Azahel? And he answered, I am. And Abner said to him, turn aside to the right hand or to your left and lay hold on one of the young men and take thee his armor. So Azahel's running without armor. He's just in zeal. He's running. He's speeding. He's chasing. He's fast. He's gaining. And he's warned. But Azahel would not turn. So Abner said again to Azahel, turn thee aside from following me. Wherefore should I smite thee to the ground? How then should I hold up my face to Joab, your brother? Howbeit he refused to turn aside, wherefore Abner, with the hinder end of the spear, smote him under the fifth rib, that the spear came out behind him, and he fell down there and died in the same place. And it came to pass that as many as came to the place where Asahel fell down and died, stood still. So he's bludgeoned with the blunt end of a spear, and he dies there uh, as, as Abishai, I'm sorry, Abner runs. And so Joab also and Abishai pursued after Abner. So the two other brothers, they keep chasing. And the sun went down where, when they came to the hill of Ammah that lies before Gaia by the way of the wilderness of Gibeon. And the children of Benjamin gathered themselves together after Abner and became one troop and stood on top of the hill. And so they have the high ground and uh, it's just Abner, I'm sorry, uh, Joab and Abishai chasing still. And it says um, that Abner called to Joab and said, shall the sword devour forever? Knowest thou not that it will be bitterness in the latter end? How long shall it be then ere you bid the people return from following their brethren? So kind of tries to blame Joab for all of this. And Joab said, as God lives, unless you had spoken, surely then in the morning, the people would have gone up everyone from following his brother. So Joab blew a trumpet and all the people stood still and pursued after Israel no more, neither fought they anymore. And Abner and his men walked all that night through the plain and passed over Jordan and went through all Bithron and they came to Mahanaim. And Joab returned from following Abner and when he had gathered all the people together, there lacked of David's servants 19 men and Azahel. I assume that includes the 12 that died in the initial confrontation. But the servants uh, of David had smitten of Benjamin and of Abner's men, so that 360 men died. And they took up Azahel, and they buried him in the sepulcher of his father, which was in Bethlehem. And Joab and his men went all night, and they came to Hebron, at the break of day. One more verse, chapter three, verse one. It says, now there was long war between the house of Saul and the house of David, but David waxed stronger and stronger and the house of Saul waxed weaker and weaker. Father, we just thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, as we read it, we're hit with the solemnity of its power and of its authority and of its uh, longevity. And Father, we ask tonight that your word would speak to us by the person of your Holy Spirit that you'd help us, Lord, to see our lives in this day and its context, and that you'd instruct us, Lord, and teach us that we might know the way we ought to live. And so we pray that you would be with us now as we get into this, and we ask it in Jesus' name. 
Amen. There's a funny thing that happens in life as you uh, kind of are born and then you grow up and then you become an adult. And, and that is that, that some things that you never knew existed at one point in your life, suddenly in another point of your life, you can't live without them. You don't, you don't know how you survived without those things. You know, I remember just as a little kid, you know, we grew up in, uh, in, in kind of a regular American household, but I never had chocolate milk. You know, I guess you say, is that a regular American household? Maybe it was in, in my context, you know. But I remember going to school and we had these milk cards and you'd turn in the milk card and uh, you'd get a thing of milk. And some of the kids had this brown little line going across their milk card. And, and, and I noticed it and I saw it and they were given a different box than what I was given. And I said, what's that? And someone said, that's chocolate milk. So chocolate milk, want to trade? And one day someone must have done it. You know? And there was this great trade and I tasted for the first time real chocolate milk. Like, not like watered, milked down, you know, but real chocolate milk. And my eyes went bright and wide, you know, and it started something. You know, something I didn't even know existed. All of a sudden now, I cannot live without it, you know. And that was in the context of a, of a child. But then, you know, I remember growing up and, uh, you know, getting married and getting saved. And, and I heard, you know, this preacher and I heard the Bible say, you know, that husbands love your wives, wives respect your husbands. That's how marriage is supposed to work. Husbands love, uh, love wives respect. And I used to think respect, you know, like I, I didn't honestly, and I, you know, I'm slow. I, I really didn't really understand even what respect was, you know, respect was like something that the, you know, the Jamaican guys on the job that I worked with would say when they greet you, they say, respect, respect, man, respect. I'm like, yeah, respect, you know, respect. Husbands, wives, respect, you know, and I really didn't understand what respect was until I started to get some, you know, and it's something I didn't previously know existed. All of a sudden now I'm like, wow, now I understand why God said this is how it's supposed to work because there's something there is like, I like this. This is good, you know, and so, you know, and there's all these things that happen to us over the course of life. Now, there are, are some people that one of those things that they never really knew existed, but then they get a taste for it is power. And it's power, this power, this idea of having authority. And I, I, I tasted it. I remember the first time I worked for this company called New York State Fence Company. And I was like this 18-year-old kid, and I was real scrawny. And they gave me a 90-pound jackhammer. And they said, we need you to just make holes in this concrete so that we can fence both. And the jackhammer took me for a ride. Like, I could not control it. It was bouncing off my feet. And they, they did it on purpose. They were just making fun of me. But what they ended up doing was giving me a, a, a traffic flaggers flag. And they said, when at certain times, you stop traffic. And I remember, like, standing there, and I would put the flag down, and people would stop. And I was like, wow, that feels kind of good. <laughs> you know? Like, I can, I can make them go, and I can make them stop. And they're just obeying me. They give me they've given me power. You know? And I, I taste it. Now, it didn't go very far because I didn't know how to wield power or keep it or anything like that. And it just wasn't one of those things that gripped me so much. You know? But there are some people that once they get a taste of power, they can never get enough. And we have seen that in world history from the very beginning. Okay? Now, God has designed it so that human beings, we have the capacity and the ability to have authority and to have power. When Adam was in the Garden of Eden before the fall and God was kind of giving him the lowdown of what life is, what he said to him is he said, you have dominion. I am putting you over. I am giving you authority. I am giving you power over this creation, all of it. 
I'm giving you power over the fish of the sea, the fowl of the air, all of the elements. You have power and authority. And God said, you have that authority. Now exercise it rightly and control things. That's what God told Adam to do. Put him in the garden. He said, here's your power, control it, work it, okay? Now, long story short, Adam and his wife messed it up really bad. And first they lost control of themselves, and then they lost control of the creation, and the power that they had was taken by Satan himself. He became the one that had absolute control, okay? Now, Adam and his descendants, that's us, did not lose the capacity to have power, nor did we lose the ability to have power, nor did we lose the desire to have power because that was something that was in us from God from the very beginning. Now, ultimately, God is the highest power, the highest authority. Satan has this pseudo-authority, the pseudo-power over the world right now, but there is no power but that power which is given from God. And God gives people and he allows people to have power or to exercise power for a season. Some people can't control themselves once they get a taste of that. And they take it so far is that they need to dominate the entire world because it's never enough. And so people that get an appetite for power never want to let go of power. It's like anything else. People that get an appetite for money, they never have enough money. It's never enough. They think it will be when I get to this point, but they blow right through that and they move on to the next level and they're just gone. They're never going to stop. People that have a lust or a desire for pleasure, it's never enough. It's, it's always got to go to the next level. And so it is for people that have a desire or an appetite for power. They cannot stop. Once they dominate, they have to continue to dominate. And they will do so until they have control of all. And we have seen it from the beginning, from Nimrod in the book of Genesis. We saw it in ancient Babylon through Nebuchadnezzar. We've seen it through the empires that have come and gone throughout the centuries and ages of human history, that when someone has an appetite for power and they are enabled to exercise that desire, they will not stop until they gather all and they will not put it down. Okay, that's something that we all understand. We have seen it, okay? Now, God's the one that allows that to happen. It's a mystery. But Romans chapter 13, verse 1, it tells us that there are no powers but of God, and even the powers that be are ordained of God. So God is the one that allows people to run with that kind of power. That's a mystery. It is echoed by Daniel in the book of Daniel chapter 4, verse 17, when Nebuchadnezzar, who was the most powerful man in the world, thought that he was unstoppable. He was humbled by God, and God said, you're going to be humbled, you're going to be cut down. And he says these words, chapter 4, verse 17. It says that you might know that, you, that God, that the living may know that the most high rules in the kingdom of men, and actually the next verse is, is I, I don't see it up on the screen. Is it there? Uh, no. Yeah, it says this is the, that he, there it is. He that he gives it to whomsoever he will. He sets over it even the basest of men. That sometimes God will set up those that you say, God, what were you thinking when you let that person have power? <laughs> you know, But God says, I'm the one that does it, and it will serve my ends, it will serve my purposes, okay? Now, God, what that means is that God raised up Saul, who is now deceased in our text. God made him king. And Saul 
could not let go of the power that God said, you're done. And so Saul held on to that power, and that power overpowered him, and it became a destructive force in his life, and Saul ultimately died. Now, when Saul died, there was then a power vacuum left in the place where Saul was. David was made king over Judah, and the highest ranking person in Saul's kingdom that was left was this man, Abner. He was the general. And Abner didn't want to let go of the power that he had either. So Abner continued for five years with no king running the show for the 11 tribes. We were told in those verses that we read at the beginning that Ishbosheth was made king by Abner for two years, but David reigned over Judah for seven and a half. What that means is that there was seven and a half years that Saul was dead. Ishbosheth was only king for two and a half of those years. So who was running things before Ishbosheth? It was Abner. And probably, and I'm inserting my opinion a little bit into the text, but it's probably safe. Probably mounting pressure from people around Abner said, hey, who's running this thing? We thought this was a Saul thing. You know, why are you? And, who? and finally he puts Ishbosheth in and makes him king. Now, what we know about Ishbosheth is that he was a lame duck. We know that because he's 40 years old when he becomes king, but yet he wasn't one of the ones that was out fighting with Saul that died in the battle. We also are going to see that he is assassinated by his own men while he's sleeping in the middle of the day in just a couple of chapters. The guy is nothing. He is put there. He's a shadow puppet. In other words, Israel has a deep state one generation into its monarchy. Saul and the people around him are running the show and they're doing what they have to do to hold on to power and to keep things going for themselves. Abner does not want to concede his position or his power to David, whom God is raising up. Abner wants control. Abner wants power. But he has a problem. And the problem is that God wants David. So Abner is on a collision course with God. And I want to show you tonight in the text what happens when men try to harness power that isn't theirs from God, okay? We were told in verses 12 and 13 that a meeting happens. I don't know if this was called Camp David at that time. It was the pool of Gibeon. And Abner and Joab, they kind of make this arrangement. We know who Abner was. Joab was essentially a nobody. This is the first time that he is seen. We hear his name mentioned one other time, uh, but really he was outranked by his brother when we first heard his name before, his brother Abishai. But now Joab comes. He will one day be David's general, but he is not yet. He is just Joab, David's nephew. We know that he's a warrior. We know that he's bold. So he comes... Abner comes and they come for a meeting to this pool. Now, we don't know what the purpose was. Was it a meeting of diplomacy? Was it a meeting of negotiation to see what they could figure out and agree upon? Was it a meeting of just assessment, probably? You know, just, hey, how's your power? How's our power? How are things happening here? This whole thing. And then they come up with this idea. They're like, let's have a little fun. 
You get 12 guys, we'll get 12 guys, we'll roll out the mats, we'll get the octagon, you know, and let's just have a little battle royale. Let's see who's actually militarily stronger. We'll just spar. The word is play that's used there in the Bible. The word literally means spar. It's contest. It's fun. There's nothing violent about what's being suggested here in the whole thing. But what we find out very quickly is what level the tensions were at. And they were very high. Because as soon as the bell rings, 12 men are dead. They pull out their daggers, they thrust each other through, and it's serious. They're dead serious about the positions that they have. And and what happens next is that war breaks out in the whole thing. And, And it tells us that the men of David prevailed. It doesn't get into too much detail. It just says that the men of David prevailed over the men of Abner and of Saul. Okay, now... Joab and his brothers, Abishai and Asahel, they know that Abner is the key to the power of Saul's kingdom. Ishbosheth is nothing. He's a puppet. He doesn't matter. If you want to unite the kingdom under David, kill Abner. If you get Abner, you get the kingdom. And they understood that. So Joab, Abishai, and Asahel, they make a beeline towards Abner. And Asahel, who happens to be a gifted runner, he takes off. He drops whatever weapons he had, whatever armor he may have been carrying because it would slow him down. And this guy, it tells us that he could outrun a deer. So he had Olympic level talent in his legs and he had the ability to chase. And so he runs, he goes after Abner, but he's not wearing any armor. Now, Abner knows he's being pursued. He knows he can't outrun this guy. He turns around and he has this conversation with him while he's running. You ever try to do that? It's not real fun, especially when you're really trying to get away. (gasps) Are you as a hell? You know, and he says, you bet I am. And he goes, and he says to him, he says, listen, you might have a gift. You might be able to run, but you are not Abner and you are not a warrior. And if you're going to do this thing, at least arm yourself. And as a hell is in zeal, he's in boldness. He thinks, okay, this is the day. We're winning the battle. We're going to bring this thing. This is God's will. God wants this. And so he just keeps running. He is in the middle of presumption. Be careful. Don't mistake presumption for faith. Don't think that, okay, well, I, you know, God just given me a gift and I can just go and it doesn't really matter if I'm prepared or called or if I've really prayed about this. I have a gift. I have vision. I, I, something's happening. There's momentum. I'm just going to go for it. Don't mistake presumption for faith because what happens to Azahel is that he gets killed because he has a gift and he has zeal, but he's not called to this. He's not equipped for it. He doesn't have the armor on. He's not prepared for it. Abner calls out and he warns him a second time. And he says, turn aside, get armor from one of the young men. I don't want to have to look at your brother. We're probably going to have another meeting at some point. Abner sees the writing on the wall. By the way, spoiler alert, Abner is going to bring his allegiance to David, just not yet, because he doesn't want to let go of control. He doesn't want to let go of power. It's not like we are. Stubborn, you know. But he says, I know I'm going to have to be face-to-face with Joab. How am I going to answer to him? If you keep chasing me, I will kill you. He warns him two times. And Azahel does not heed the warning. Therefore, when he gets close enough, it's not hard for Joab. It just makes sense. He's got the spear. He goes, you get the gory details. 
plugged in would give this rating an R or something like that for blood and mortar, you know, murder and violence and gore and the whole thing. Beware of misguided zeal, okay? Um, because sometimes you can think that just because you're more talented than most people in an area, that somehow that makes you indestructible or invincible. Azahel can run, but he is not Abner. Talent can get you in the door, but you better know what's inside before you get in there. Okay, <laughs> understand what your gifts are for before you presumably use them for something that they were not made for. It's an interesting thing that, that he's compared to a deer because have you ever seen a deer running at full speed? It is remarkable, especially like if you're walking in the woods and you see one just take off. I mean, they can jump over those sound walls on the highway. They're unbelievable. But do you know why God made deers fast? To get away from trouble. Okay, he didn't make them fast so that they could run into trouble at breakneck speed. He made it so they could get away. And that was Azahel. He had a gift, but the gift wasn't to chase. God gave him something to help him get out of trouble, not get himself into trouble. And he was impatient and it caused problems. Okay, listen to me. God is thorough in the way that he does things. God is going to bring Abner and all of the house of Israel under the rulership of David. He's not going to do it through Asahel assassinating Abner and doing it that way. God is going to do it later through peace. God has another plan. And God's ways are thorough. When God does something, God does things right and he accounts for all things. Impatience causes problems. And maybe you're in something tonight, right now, and you just want the problem solved. You see that there's tension in a situation, and you just want it fixed. Can I say this? Wait on the Lord. Put it before him. Let him orchestrate, because the way God moves is slower than we often like, but he takes everything into account. And it's important that everything be taken into account if you want God's resolution in a situation. Okay, God is doing something that Azahel can't see, and God doesn't need man's help. And unless you understand all of what God is doing in a situation, and you don't, I'm just going to tell you that right now, you don't, then just beware of misguided zeal. Do you know who the wisest, the wisest person in this entire passage is? David. Because he's not there and he's minding his own business. And sometimes that's wisdom in a situation. Just stay out of it and mind your own business and let God do what God's going to do. Well, Azahel falls down dead. Joab and Abishai, the two brothers that lived, they continue to chase Abner. Now it's not about David anymore. Now it's about revenge. Okay, they killed uh, you know, Asahel and the whole thing. And what happens is Abner gets the high ground. He is then surrounded by a troop of men. And so you have Abner on the hill with his men. And you have Joab and Abishai down below. They cannot catch Abner now. But Abner yells down the hill and he says, Shall the sword devour forever? Blow the trumpet and call this thing off. And Joab rightly shouts back up the hill and say, you started it. If you hadn't done this whole thing this morning with the whole sparring thing, and, you know, then this never would have happened in the first place. You, know, you started this whole thing. <laughs> you can call it off. And so he does. Joab blows the trumpet and everybody goes home. 
The aftermath of the thing, we're told in the closing verse of the chapter, is that 380 men total between the two sides plus Azahel are dead. Okay? Listen to me. The cost of power that's not yours from God is the blood of the innocent. The cost of trying to hold on to power is always death. It happens every time. Um, it's an interesting thing that after a conflict is over, when something is, is done and gone, you know, often it's not until later and everything is, 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 is kind of cleared up and passed that you can see clearly what happened. You know, sometimes people go through like a, a nasty divorce and a family breaks up and it's just explosive and it's ugly, you know. And, 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 and you know, you kind of like, what happened? And then as the years kind of go by, you know, you, you know the events that happened in the middle of it, but you begin to see it more clearly. You see what led up to it. You see the cause and effect. You see where there were cracks in the foundation from the beginning, you know, and you just see it, you know, and it's like that with a lot of things is like, as you get further away from something, you understand it and you see it more clearly for what it is. About a hundred years ago, uh, the United States entered the first world war. It was the first of the, what we would call a global conflict. And at the time, it just was kind of about, you know, politics and power and tyranny and democracy and freedom and all the things that you hear when wars happen and all that stuff. But, but over time, you start to put the pieces together and you start to realize that this plus this equals this and this happened first and this was going on behind the scenes and the whole thing. And really, just in the last few years, if things have been unsealed and, and, and things have been made more clear and more known, we're really starting to get a picture of what World War I was all about. And I, I read this. I, I, have a, a, I have a daughter who is contemplating uh, the military. And so I really want to just understand it for me. So I'm not like a history buff because I'm going to read some of this to you and you're going to think like, wow, this guy's like really scholarly and everything. I'm not. I just really want to understand uh, the thing. And so I, I kind of stumbled onto this. This is the transcript from a, um, a thing on World War I and there's way too many authors involved for me to quote everybody. But I just want to read a couple passages because I want you to see, I want you to understand what a desire for power does and what it costs. And, and this is important. You'll understand why. Um, so what, what we understand now is that World War I really, there was no reason for the United States of America to join it. That we were politically not involved. There was no practical reason. There was no stake that we had in things that we really had to join the war. But there were some very powerful men in Great Britain. And they had a desire to, number one, squash Germany because of their rising influence in the world at the time. And they also had a desire to reintegrate the United States back into what was then the British Empire, what was left of it. And so they kind of started to spin some things behind the, 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 the things, and they got the war started. That was their agenda. That was their goal. They found an ally in an American banker whose name was John Pierpont Morgan. Maybe you've heard of him, J.P. Morgan, okay? And, and this guy, he was doing two things simultaneously. Number one is that he was working to grab control of the monetary system in the United States of America. Prior to J.P. Morgan, the government controlled the issuing and the, you know, um, the, the system of the currency in our country. That was a government thing. 
He wanted it to be controlled by the banks. That was his agenda. And so he was working angles to try to create what is today known as the Federal Reserve, which is a central bank that controls the money, not just in the United States, but beyond the borders of our country as well. So he was working on that, J.P. Morgan was. But the other thing that he was doing is that he was loaning out money to the governments of the allied forces and funding their side of the war. Horses, military, you know, d defense things, armor, you know, that he was funding that. So they found an ally in J.P. Morgan. I just want to read you some of this uh, that we understand now in the whole thing, okay? And, and bear with me. This is a little strange, I know. I'm just going to read a couple of passages, and this could totally fall flat and, and not go anywhere, and you'll forgive me, I know, and you'll come back. But it's interesting, if nothing else. It says this. It says, um, Morgan and his fellow bankers were going to have to find a suitable cover to get their act, that is the Federal Reserve Act, through Congress, including preferably a president with sufficient progressive cover to give the new Federal Reserve Act an air of legitimacy. And they found their ideal candidate in the politically unknown president of Princeton University, Woodrow Wilson, a man whom they were about to rocket straight into the White House with the help of their point man, uh, Edward Mandel House. The election of Woodrow Wilson once again shows how power operates behind the scenes to subvert the popular vote and the will of the public. Knowing that the stuffy and politically unknown Wilson would have little chance of being elected over the more popular and affable William Howard Taft, Morgan and his banking allies bankrolled Teddy Roosevelt on a third-party ticket to split the Republican vote. The strategy worked, and the banker's real choice, Woodrow Wilson, came to power with just 42% of the popular vote. With Wilson in office and Colonel House directing his actions, Morgan and his men got their wish. 1913, this is important, saw the passage of both the Federal Income Tax and the Federal Reserve Act. That means prior to 1913, there was no federal withholdings on your pay stub. Okay, that happened in 1913. At the same time, the Federal Reserve Act, meaning the monetary system, was taken out of the hands of the government and put into the hand of banks. Those are historical events that happened uh, in that time. That was J.P. Uh, Morgan. Okay, now let me read. I'm a little uh, shuffled here and things, but listen to this. I want to tell you about him. It says that John Pierpont Morgan himself died in 1913 before the passage of the Federal Reserve Act he had stewarded into existence and before before the outbreak of war in Europe. But the House of Morgan stood strong with the Morgan Bank under the helm of his son, John Pierpont Morgan Jr., maintaining its position and preeminent financier in America. Listen, the young Morgan moved quickly to leverage his family's connections with the London banking community, and the Morgan Bank signed its first commercial agreement with the British Army Council in 1915, just four months before the war. That initial contract a $12 million purchase of horses for the British war effort to be brokered in the U.S. by the House of Morgan was only the beginning. By the end of the war, the Morgan Bank had brokered $3 billion in transactions for the British military, equal to almost half of all American supplies sold to the Allies in the entire war. But this game, and this is important, listen to this, this game of war financing was not without its risks. If the Allied powers were to lose the war, the Morgan Bank and the other major Wall Street banks would lose their interest on all of the credit they had extended to them. 
By 1917, the situation was dire. The British government's overdraft with Morgan stood at over $400 million, and it was not clear that they would even win the war, let alone be in a position to repay all their debts when the fighting was over. In April of 1917, just eight days after the U.S. declared war on Germany, Congress passed the War Loan Act extending $1 billion in credit to the Allies. The first payment of $200 million went to the British, and the entire amount was immediately handed over to Morgan as partial payment on their debt to the bank. Within a few days, $100 million was parceled out to the French government. It, too, was promptly returned to the Morgan coffers. But the debts continued to mount, and throughout 1917 and 1918, the U.S. Treasury, aided by the Pilgrim Society, uh, member and avowed Anglophile Benjamin Strong, president of the newly created Federal Reserve, quietly paid off the Allies' powers war debts to J.P. Morgan. Uh, uh, unbelievable. Okay, now... Enter the reason why they needed Woodrow Wilson in office. Actually, I'm going to skip all this because it's getting boring, you know, and the whole thing. But, but I want you to understand um, the, the significance of the United States being pulled into this war. Because if they hadn't been and the Allied powers lost, then the banks lose their money. What I was about to read was more uh, uh, Woodrow Wilson's speech to the American people as to why they should enter the war. In fact, I have to read it to you because you've heard this speech before a thousand times. It's short. Don't worry. It's very short. Listen. It says it is with a profound sense. This is the president talking to the American. Here you are in your house listening to the radio. National, we interrupt this broadcast to bring you a message, an urgent message from the president of the United States. And here goes the president. With a profound sense of solemn and even tragical character of the step I am taking and of the grave responsibility which it involves. But in unhesitating obedience to what I deem my constitutional duty, I advise that the Congress declare the recent course of the imperial German government to be, in fact, nothing less than war against the government and people of the United States. The world must be made safe for democracy. Do you hear? Let me tell you The world must be made safe for democracy. It's important. I don't know if you remember him. This was a few years ago. We heard this speech before. Its peace must be planted on the tested foundations of political liberty. We have no selfish ends to serve. We desire no conquest, no dominion. We seek no indemnities for ourselves. I'm going back to my voice now. It's weird. No material compensation for the sacrifices we shall freely make. We are but one of the champions of the rights of mankind. We shall be satisfied when those rights have been made as secure as the faith and the freedom of the nations can make them. Four days later, on April 6th, U.S. Congress issued a formal declaration of war. And inside the White House, President Woodrow Wilson conferred with advisors and signed the proclamation of war against Germany. And everywhere there was cheering, waving of flags. Hindsight or cynicism might make us smile at the thought that this war was sometimes called the Great Adventure. Never again would we see our entry into a major conflict at sight so many to such heights of elation. Naive, probably, but there was a generation of young men not yet saturated by the paralyzing variety of self-analysis and the mock sciences they believed. All along the Western Front, the Allies rejoiced. The Yanks were coming. Okay? We're pulled into the war. Now, all of this going on, it says spending government funds at an annual rate of $10 billion. Do you know what government funds is? Ta- thank you. Tax dollars. Your money. Okay? Your, you, your, you, 
your money. At an annual rate of $10 billion, the War Industries Board, newly minted, made many new millionaires in the American economy. Millionaires who, like Samuel Prescott Bush of the infamous Bush family, happened to sit on the War Industries Board. Bernard Baruch himself was said to have personally profited from his position as the head of the War Industries Board to the tune of $200 million. Unbelievable. Okay, now the war goes on. Listen to the conclusion. It says, after long months of intense strain, of keying themselves up to the daily mortal danger, of thinking always in terms of war and the enemy, the abrupt release from it all was physical and psychological agony. 10 to 12 million people died, both soldiers and civilians. Some suffered a total nervous collapse. Some, of a steadier temperament, began to hope they would someday return to home and embrace their loved ones. Some could think only of the crude little crosses that marked the graves of their comrades. Some fell into an exhausted sleep. All were bewildered by the sudden meaninglessness of their existence as soldiers and through their teeming memories paraded that swiftly moving cavalcade through and then it lists a bunch of cities. Listen, the price of power is innocent blood. And if you go through and you do a little bit of the homework and you see the casual discare for human beings, it is unbelievable to see. And, and we see it right here. We see it in the text. It's only 380 this time. But because one man wanted to hold power that wasn't his from God, 380 people lost their lives. Now, I want you to understand that Abner's conflict, and really no conflict that involves the grabbing or holding of power, has anything to do with man. And Abner's didn't. Abner had no problem with David, per se. Abner was fighting against God. That was the issue. That's what was going on in this whole thing. David's reign was not even about David. None of this is about humans. All of it is about God. Man wants power. God has power. Man fights against God. Now, I want you to understand something. And the concept is all that. And come, you know, I'm sorry if that was confusing. <laughs> it was clear in my mind, and I think it'll communicate by the end of the message. But listen, here's what you got to understand. Is that all of human history, whether it was David being raised up in place of Saul, or whether it is every kingdom that has come and crashed and new ones have risen, all of it is funneling towards God's intended purpose for the nations ultimately. It's all moving in that direction. Listen to what that purpose is. It's told us in the Bible. It's Ephesians chapter 1, verse 9. Listen to what it says. It says that God has made known unto us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he has purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on the earth, even in him. Meaning that all kingdoms and all power and all events and all things that happen are ultimately funneling towards the time when Jesus Christ will establish his kingdom in the world and all things are moving towards that end. And anything that is working contrary to that is not in harmony with God's plan. It's against God. Now listen to what Jesus said. It's John chapter 18, verse 36. He said, my kingdom is not of this world. And if it were, my servants would fight. In other words, the sword is not the answer. 
The kingdom that will come, that will last, that will be just, that will be fair, that will have longevity, that will bring prosperity that won't end. That kingdom is not a kingdom that is of this world. Every kingdom of this world will come and crash until his kingdom is ultimately set up. And here's the truth of the matter. That includes ours. That includes the United States of America. It was Saul's reign. Even David gave way to those after him. All of it will give way ultimately to Jesus Christ. You know, the Constitution is an amazing thing, isn't it? I mean, the, the, it comes to light in these days because of all the things going on in the world. And people that really didn't know much about it for a long time really know a lot about it now. And the more you learn about it, the more you realize how amazing it was. But the, the, the people that framed the U.S. Constitution, that made it, they understood something that was extremely important. And that was that they understood that the Constitution was only suitable and sustainable for what they referred to as a religious people. And by religious, what I mean is that a people that knew that they were created by God and that their lives were sustained by God. A people that knew that God watched over their comings and their goings. That they knew that God was the one that established the boundaries of their nations and that he was the one who gave life, and he was the one that ushered in, in death. In other words, they knew that the only way that this will work and continue to work is if God is central to the events. But as soon as he's removed, the whole thing will disintegrate. And that's what they said. Listen to John Adams. This is a quote directly from him. It should go up on the screen. He said, we have no government armed with power, capable of contending with human passions unbridled by morality and religion. He said, our constitution is designed only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate for any other. In the same quote, he said this. He said, avarice, that's greed, ambition, revenge, or gallantry, would break the strongest cords of our constitution as a whale goes through a net. That's amazing. That was one of the framers of the constitution. And he realized that it is impossible to sustain that form of government by a people that aren't dependent and centered upon God himself. And he's absolutely right about that. And the question that, that it causes us to ask is why is it that in all of these years of human history, 6,000 years of civilized human history, man cannot build a system that will last? You know? And, and we know the answer to that. It's because of the fall of man in the presence of sin. That man is not good enough to build a system that is fair, that is just, that is prosperous, and that will last. And what that means is that until Christ's kingdom comes, there is no kingdom that will be able to produce that thing. So where are we then as a nation in relation to all of this? Just this past week, there was a debate going on on the floor of the Congress over this Equality Act. And I'm not going to get into it. You can Google it if you don't know what it is. It might be something that comes to bite the church uh, should it gain enough uh, momentum and strength. But this exchange was recorded on the floor of Congress between uh, Greg, I don't know how to say his last name, I think it's Stubbe and Jerry Nadler. Greg Stubbe is a, a Republican representative from Florida and Jerry Nadler is a Democratic uh, representative from the state of New York. And listen to what uh, 
Greg Stube said from Florida in this debate over the Equality Act, he said, the gender confusion that exists in our culture today is a clear rejection of God's good design, he said. Whenever a nation's laws no longer reflect the standards of God, that nation is in rebellion against him and will inevitably bear the consequences. And so uh, Nadler, you know, dug into his position. He replied this way. He said, Mr. Stube, Stube, what any religious tradition describes as God's will is no concern of this Congress. And that was where the debate ended. The things were stopped in, in, in that whole thing. Listen, he, here's the point that I'm making in all of this, is that in the days of David, the kingdom of Saul had to give way to the kingdom of David. And there is a day coming when all of the kingdoms of this world will give way to the coming of the kingdom of our Christ and of his, uh, the, of our God and of his Christ. And there is a day coming when the United States will be no more. All of them will come and they will crash. Now, what does that mean? It means that our place as citizens of this country and as Christians, however you want to put it, our place is not to try to fight with the sword to preserve something that God is moving past. Jesus said, they that live by the sword will die by the sword. We see that in the person of Azahel there in the text. Okay, now that is true universally. That means that the people that are trying to dominate by the sword, those that want power, those people are going to die by the sword. They will give way. They're not going to win. It's also true for those that try to preserve a system that God is moving past, whether that be Abner trying to hold Saul's kingdom or whether it be someone in our day that says, by hell or high water, by militia or guns or ammo, we're going to take this thing all the way. Listen, if God is done with something, that something is done. And they that live by the sword will die by the sword. Listen, here's my message tonight to you from this text, from the word, from God. Okay, here it is. Don't be an Asahel. <laughs> Okay, that, that, that's the message. Don't be an Asahel. All right, he was on the right team, but he was doing it the wrong way. It wasn't the way that God intended for him to do it. It wasn't the way it was to be done, okay? The Constitution of the United States of America is the direct result of the European revivals that we call the Reformation. And the way that it happened is that God got a hold of enough people and he put enough truth in their hearts to understand where the world came from, where the world is heading, and what is in man, that when the United States was founded, they had the wisdom to build something that was God-centric to build protections and freedom and liberty and value into a future culture and society. But it wasn't the result of the mind. It was the result of the heart that God had gotten hold of enough people and put light in them. It came from them. Do you understand? You cannot recreate the Constitution. 
You can recreate what God did in the lives of people that brought that forward. That's where the fight is. Do you understand? See, it's not about, we're going to get guns and we're going to go and take this thing over and restore. You can't. And certainly that isn't the way to do it. Think about what would have happened if Azahel was successful and he killed Abner. You would have had this fragmented, disgusting, ugly thing going on, whereas God was going to do it by peace. He had a plan. He was doing something. Things were moving somewhere. And so you say, well, what then are we to do? How are we to fight if it's not by the sword? Number one is that you lean on the sun. Okay, what did Jesus say when his disciples said, Lord, help us to know how to pray because we don't know how to pray? What was the first thing that Jesus said when you pray? Say, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. That's an address. Listen, say it with me. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Okay, stop right there. That's how, all right? Thy kingdom come. That's where all things are going to. That in the fullness of times, he might gather all things together in one, that he will be the head over all principality, over all power. He will build a kingdom that will be sustained, that will last. But he has to do it his way, and he calls us to pray, first of all. We're to lean on the sun, and then number two, we're to stand on the sword, okay? We're to stand on the sword. What do you mean? When Jesus was just about to go to the cross and he was there with his disciples, Luke chapter 22, he asks them this question. He says, when you were with me, did you ever lack anything? They said, no. Did you ever need anything? No. Was there any problems? No. But then he said this, now I say unto you, verse 36, he says, he that has a purse, let him take it, and likewise his script, and he that has a sword, or he that has no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. Get a sword. Okay? Go get a sword. Okay, you say, wait a minute. Why is Jesus, who is always saying, trust God, pray, why is Jesus saying, go buy a sword? Well, here's what happens right after that. Peter goes, looks around, and he goes, uh, he goes, Lord, there's two swords here. And Jesus says, that's enough. Now, wait, do the math. There's 12 of them. We know that there's really 120 by, based on who's there later on, and there's only two swords. How is two swords enough to go against the... Wait, what is Jesus saying? Is he saying, no, 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 no. It's not that sword. See, it's not the sword of man. It's not the sword of flesh. It's the sword of the spirit. It's the sword of the word. Stand on the word. Lean on the sun, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, and then stand on the sword. Fill yourself with truth. Understand unequivocally where the earth came from and what happened in it. Understand, based on the truth of the word, what is coming. What God says is going to be the culmination of all things. Understand unequivocally, based on the word of God, what is in man, what we are, the truth of what life is. And the result of that is that you will have understanding to see clearly what is going on around you, and that will arm you, okay? It will arm you to know what you're to do practically. Why did Azahel die? He was unarmed. 
He had a gift that he didn't understand. He had zeal and opportunity, but he was unequipped. And what the word does is that it gives you a lens through which you can see what's going on around you clearly according to truth. And when the time comes and the opportunity comes, you know what to do. It's not hocus pocus. It's very practical. It's very clear. God gives wisdom through his word. Do you realize that's what we're doing tonight? I mean, even right now, that's what we're doing. We're looking at what the word says about power and man and this, this lust for it and the whole thing. And and contrast that with God and how man is fighting against God and there's all this corruption. Where it's headed to? It's truth. That's what truth does. And freedom comes from truth. Okay? Listen. Don't be an Asahel, but turn aside, okay, and arm yourself. Turn aside. That was the word that Abner said. Turn aside and arm yourself. It's not ammunition. It's not another AK. It's not, it's, listen, it is the word. Lean on the sun, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Stand on the sword, okay? And he will preserve his church, his people. He will lead us, amen? amen. Father, we thank you for your word. And, uh, and Lord, as we look at these things, it, it's unbelievable to us to, to, to uh, consider and to ponder, Lord. And what we're praying for tonight as a church, Lord, is we're asking that you would give us wisdom, We ask that you would give us vision, that you would give us clarity to see the things that are going on around us. We know, Lord, that we're living in historic days. We know, Lord, that uh, our presence here is important. We know that we are significant, each one of us. You've given us a sphere of influence. You've given us an ability and opportunity. And we don't want to waste it. We don't want to miss it. And so we're asking you tonight, dear Father, that your kingdom would come and that your will would be done, that you would work your work to overcome the attempts of men, corrupt men, that you would root it out. And we're praying, Jesus, that you would come and that in the meantime, you would use us, that you would keep us, that you would hold us. And I pray tonight, Lord, if there is anyone here that doesn't know you personally, that, Lord, you would have mercy on them and that you'd pluck them, pluck them from a path of destruction that maybe they don't even know that they're on, that you would reveal yourself, Jesus, the answer to all things. So help us tonight. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for your church. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together. Thanks for joining us for the Pastor Nick Santo podcast. To regularly receive these teachings, be sure to subscribe so you can get it automatically when it's released. If you find this material helpful, please share it and help us get the message of Jesus out to others. We also appreciate your feedback. So if you would, Leave us a review in iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts or email us at pastor.nickpc at gmail.com. Until next time, may you continue to love, learn, and live the way of Jesus.